Good morning, my friend. 345. I had a long day in surgery yesterday. My hands are killing me. But it was an amazing uh, gift that God gave me. We were in the middle of this long day doing difficult things. We're working and I just, I became filled with this incredible sense of gratitude that I got to help this person that we were working on. It was late and the team was tired. And then when this person had been told that there was nothing that could be done to help them, uh, and, and we figured out, uh, we got some special studies and figured out that there was in fact something that could be done to help them. And, and we relieved the pain of this individual and, it, and it's going to change their life. And I just, and God just gave me this perspective shift instead of focusing on how tired I was and how ready to have dinner I was and all those things. He just filled me with this awe of, hey, we're here looking at this incredible nervous system. We're relieving pain. We're restoring function. God's using our hands to deliver this person from trouble. And I just shifted my brain from pain and irritation and fatigue to gratitude and thankfulness. And it made a huge difference. And it reminded me of a podcast episode that I did way back at the start of the Dr. Lee Warren podcast, episode three of season one. So, you know, early 2019, late 2018. And it was called What to Do When You Don't Know What to Do. It was about grief and, and, and what do you do next when life hits you hard, which is right in line with what I'm writing now in the new book, Hope is the First Dose. And I thought, man, that would be a great episode to bring back because there's some people, especially on the prayer wall right now, who just have gotten punched by life. My friend Kristen Smedley, uh, Lisa and I have gotten to know, has two sons who were born with a genetic defect that produced blindness uh, in them. And, and she and her friend Mary Fran Bontempo have a podcast called Brilliantly Resilient, which you should check out. And they talk about what do you do when life gives you that sucker punch? You know, you just boom, you, all of a sudden you thought everything was okay and now it's not okay. What do you do next? How do you handle the sucker punches? And my book is about, of course, when the massive thing happens in your life and, and you just don't know what to do. You know, what do you do next? Put some, put some bones on that, put some flesh on those bones and, and figure out how to make it work again. And so I'm going to bring you back this episode, what to do when you don't know what to do. And at the end of it, I'm going to play a, a song on Tommy Walker's newest album. Um, Tommy and Eileen Walker released this amazing album called Highest Praises. I've played you several of those songs, but there's a song that Tommy did called Worship is the Way. And on his website, TommyWalkerMinistries.org, you can find the video. And you can find these, I uh, love Tommy's uh, website because when he does a video, he always posts a little devotional thought or some scriptures or something behind it. And he said that the song speaks, the, the song Worship is the Way that we're going to play at the end, speaks to many of the powerful things that can happen when we worship. But here's one thing you can do, friend, when you don't know what to do. You can worship. Find a way to find gratitude like I did yesterday. And Tommy says, here's five focus points. Truth, focus, perspective, relationship, and closeness. Truth. One of the most powerful things that happens when we worship is that God's truth and the many truths about God are declared. So speaking truth always helps you and whoever hears it. Focus. What has our attention is what has us. Think about that for a second. What has our attention is what has us. Worship, like nothing else, has a way of putting the character, nature, and activity of God before us and placing all the distractions and worries of life into the distant background. Three, perspective. When we get that glimpse and reminder of just how glorious our God is, we come face to face with the blessed reality that our problems are small compared to the greatness of our God. For relationship, a significant scripture for me is Psalm twenty five fourteen. Friendship with the Lord is with those who fear him, 
to them. He tells the secrets of his covenant. One of the ways we actively fear and reverence the Lord is through worship and closeness. Our Lord comes close as we praise and adore him. He dwells in, occupies, and makes his home in our praise. Thank you for that thought, Tommy. Friend, I'll put the link to Tommy's uh, video and devotional in the show notes but what to do when you don't know what to do stick with me for this episode i'll leave it as is and at the end tommy's song worship is the way i just want to share this with you today it's going to help you friend love you we'll be back tomorrow with a new episode god bless you friend and have a great day hey are you ready to change your life if the answer is yes there's only one rule you have to change your mind first And my friend, there's a place where the neuroscience of how your mind works smashes together with faith and everything starts to make sense. That place is called self-brain surgery. You can learn it and it will help you become healthier, feel better, and be happier. And the good news is you can start today. Thanks, Lisa. Hey, so glad to have you listening today. I'm Dr. Lee Warren, and I live in Nebraska in the United States of America with my incredible wife, Lisa, my father-in-law, Tata, and the super pups, Harvey and Lewis. I'm a neurosurgeon and an author, and I'm here to help you harness neuroscience, the power of your brain, faith, the power of your spirit, and good old common sense to help you lead a healthier, better, happier life. Listen, friend, you can't change your life until you change your mind, and I'm here to help you learn the art of self-brain surgery to get it done if you like the show. Please subscribe so you never miss an episode and tell your friends about it. If you tell two or three friends this podcast was helpful to you, imagine how much good we can all do around the world together. I'm Dr. Lee Warren, and I'm here to help you change your mind so you can change your life. Let's get after it. I sat down to prepare my thoughts for this episode on the morning of August 20th, 2019. Now, today's November 11th. And by the way, if you're a veteran of the armed forces or if you're currently serving, happy Veterans Day and thank you for your service. But a few weeks ago, when I was thinking about this episode and what I wanted to say to you, it was the sixth anniversary of the day that our son Mitchell died. Mitch was a great kid. He was witty and funny and smart and insightful. He was tender. He had a huge heart. He was loving and gentle and gifted and just had unlimited potential. And he was 19, and just like that, he was gone. So many experiences in life produce an instant reaction from us. When you touch a hot stove, for example, you jerk your hand back instinctively. If your kid runs out into traffic, you reach out and grab them, pull them to safety before you even realize you're doing it. You hear the voice of someone you love and you smile inside before you even consciously realize who's talking, right? But when something happens that's so unexpected, so unprecedented, so out of your paradigm of possibility that you had for your life, sometimes there's no way to know how to react or to respond to it. When Mitch died, it literally took the wind out of us. We were we just gut punched. We sat down. We didn't know what to do. There's no pre-programmed right reaction to something like that happening. Sure, grief and the normal physiological responses to pain happen. Tears, sleeplessness, physical pain, emotional turmoil. I even developed shingles and my hair turned gray almost overnight. But under all that pain, you just don't know what to do. There's no reflex to move you to safety, to propel you forward, to set things right when you experience something you weren't ready for. It's scary. and It makes you feel like it can't ever be better, like you won't be able to make it through. But it turns out, that you can. And I'm here to make sure that you will because you're not alone in this, friend. When everything seems so dark, you need to know how to find the light again or at least to believe that the light is still out there somewhere. Sometimes it's enough to believe that you will believe again. If you can just hold on long enough, 
you might find that spark, that faith, that hope again. And so today, we're going to talk about what to do when you don't know what to do. The most important thing in getting back on your feet is to simply decide that it's time to start. I know that sounds too simple. Of course, there's more to it than that, or this would be a really short podcast episode. But the fact is, when you don't know what to do, at some point, you've got to do something, and that something is to start. So how about it? My job puts me in contact with a lot of people who are in desperate situations. I'm talking about, I just found out I have six months to live, or my daughter broke her neck and will never walk again, that type of desperation. The If the surgery doesn't work, I'm going to lose my job, desperation. I lost my job, and now they're foreclosing on my house, that kind of desperation. I hear that all the time. And the desperation in almost every case is pretty quickly followed by a question. What am I supposed to do now? Elizabeth Kubler-Ross was a Swiss-born American psychiatrist whose work really helped to define the process that people go through when they find out that they're dying. She defined and published the now-famous five stages of grief that most people have heard of or studied in school. Her stages are denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. It's important to realize, though, that these were defined in the context of people coming to grips with the news that they're dying, but the model has been widely applied to having to come to terms with any type of difficulty that you face in your life. But here's the problem. Terminally ill patients actually sort of progress through these stages in a fairly predictable and orderly fashion, but pretty much nobody else does. When you apply the model to other types of hardship, especially ones from which you're going to survive and live a long time after, the stages aren't so predictable. And I can tell you from having lost a son that the process is not at all orderly for me. I don't pass through anger and never face it again. I doubt you will either. You don't get to acceptance and never question God again. It just doesn't work that way. I'm only telling you this to prepare you in case you've never been through something really hard in your life so that you're not taken by surprise when learning to live your life after that thing happens and it turns out to be more circuitous than the books tell you it will be. I deal with all of those stages over and over again. In fact, I still get really mad about losing Mitch all the time. And I'll confess something to you right now. When I see adults whose lives have been disasters, especially criminals and drug addicts or people that the world might call, quote, bad people, sometimes I really give God an earful about it because it seems so unfair to me that people get to live and make mistakes over and over and over. And Mitch died when he was 19. He didn't even get a chance to get started. It just doesn't seem right. It doesn't seem fair. And I'll go from this place of acceptance to being angry and shocked, just like I was on August 20th of 2013, because grief and loss don't follow the rules. So when you think, what do I do now? One thing not to do is to expect some sort of sense to come that you'll just progress through these stages and everything will work out. But emotionally, it's also not healthy to just tell yourself to get over it. There is a process, and you have to go through it. And you also can't just ignore whatever the problem is or crumble under the weight of it. None of those are healthy. So what do we do? But before we find out, it's time for this week's Things That Help. If you get on social media, it seems like you can't go five minutes without seeing a veteran-owned coffee or T-shirt company. 
I'm serious. There's so many companies out there owned by vets that are selling coffee and T-shirts. But one of those T-shirt companies, I'm going to put a link in the show notes, is selling two shirts that I think are fantastic. And they both made me think about this episode. And they both made me think about you. The first one, the shirt says, but did you die? And the second shirt says, sweat dries, blood clots, and bones heal. Sweat dries, blood clots, and bones heal. Okay, back to the show. We'll get more, in, more into what those T-shirts mean to me in a few minutes. Chris Voss is a retired FBI hostage negotiator, and he wrote a book recently called Never Split the Difference. This book is really useful in, in learning how to negotiate in all kinds of different ways. But one line that came in the book is something that I think is very relevant to what do you do when you don't know what to do because something happened that you didn't expect to happen in your life. Chris Voss said, when the pressure's on, you don't rise to the occasion, you fall to your highest level of preparation. When the pressure's on, you don't rise to the occasion, you fall to your highest level of preparation. Now, this is true in response to loss, pain, any kind of difficulty, too. You need to be prepared. Now, I pray that if you've never been through anything hard, that you'll use this episode to prepare yourself for the idea that you will. Because someday you will face something hard, and how you prepare for it will make all the difference in the world in how you survive. Now, when I'm talking about being prepared for hard things to happen, I'm not saying that I want you to be cynical. I don't want you to live your life waiting for the other shoe to drop all the time. But Jesus said it himself in John that in this world we will have trouble. So I'm talking about realism and not cynicism. When I was in Sunday school as a kid, there was a song that they taught us that really teaches you this lesson of having your life built on stuff that's firm, that even when bad things happen, it won't wash you away. There's a little song, The Wise Man Built His House Upon the Rock. The wise man built his house upon the rock, and the rains came tumbling down. And then the song goes, the rains came down, and the floods came up, and the rains came down, and the floods came up, but the wise man's house stood firm. And the next verse is about the foolish man. It says, the foolish man built his house upon the sand. And the rains came down, and the floods came up, and the foolish man's house went splat. And the last verse is, so build your house on something better. In the song, it's build your house on the Lord Jesus Christ. But the point holds, no matter how you think about that sort of thing. If you build your life on stuff that's not possessions, it's not relationships, it's not temporal things or people that are going to pass away someday. You build your life on something bigger, or you at least understand that there's more to life than one part of the story. Then when the rains come down and the floods come up, your house isn't going to go splat. So Chris Voss's point then is sound. When the pressure's on, you don't rise to the occasion. You fall to your highest level of preparation. You fall all the way down to wherever your house is built. Now, I told you this episode is about what to do when you don't know what to do. But part of that is having prepared your heart for hard things being possible. And again, if you know that life is hard, then you go into life and you go into situations knowing that there's a possibility that something bad's going to happen someday and that you're going to need to have a way to respond to that. There's an Old Testament prophet named Habakkuk. And in the story in Habakkuk uh, chapter 3, the whole book up, up until that point in chapter 3 has been about how the people are really getting pile-drived by their enemies. And Habakkuk feels like God has abandoned them. But he says, 
something that reveals that his heart was prepared for those hard things, and he knew what to do because he knew where his, his life was built on. And he said, even if the fig tree doesn't blossom and there are no grapes on the vines, if the olive trees fail to give fruit and the fields produce no food, if the flocks die far from the fold and there are no cattle in the stalls, then I will still rejoice in the eternal. I will rejoice in the God who saves me. The eternal Lord is my strength. So here's an example of a person who has something bigger than just life to build his house on. He was planning on it, being hard sometimes. And he was prepared for that because he knew it was coming in his life. Now, even if you're prepared and you've got a solid foundation, some things in life will hit us so hard that we're not going to know what to do. I read a really good book recently called The Miracle Equation by Hal Elrod. He's the same guy who wrote Miracle Morning, and both of those books are worth reading. In The Miracle Equation, Elrod talks a lot about the importance of controlling your emotional responses to events in your life, since our emotions can cause trouble for us in making good decisions and in our relationships. He says this, It's not the experience, the circumstance, or the event that causes our emotional pain, but rather our unwillingness to accept life as it is and move forward that's the cause. So what he's saying is that it's getting to that acceptance phase that's going to allow us to control the emotional components and overcome and survive the emotional components of the hard things that happen to us. Because it's not the event, it's not losing somebody that creates the emotional pain. It's your heart's preparation for the fact that you can lose somebody. Now, now my professor in medical school, psychiatry professor Gordon Deckard, used to say this about emotion. The feeling is not the fact, and the fantasy is not the act. In other words, what you feel in a given situation doesn't make that a fact. You feel like you're never going to overcome this. That's not necessarily a fact. You feel like nobody will ever love you again. That's not necessarily a fact. It's just a feeling. You feel like because you've lost a child that you must be a terrible parent. That's not a fact. It's a feeling. And Elrod has something that he calls the five-minute rule. When something hard happens in his life, he gives himself five minutes to be as emotional as he wants to be about it. He blows up, he hits stuff, he screams and yells. I don't know if he hits things or not, but, but that's the, the idea is that he vents it out. He lets the emotion run for five minutes, and then he puts his thinking cap on and he starts trying to figure out how to handle the situation. Now, I'm not going to sit here and say that it's reasonable or even possible to handle emotional things like losing somebody or losing your job or getting cancer in five minutes. That's not reasonable, and I'm not saying that you should. I'm saying that the point has some validity to it. In fact, it reminds me of the Jewish culture custom of Shiva. Back in the Old Testament times, and I think still today uh, with Orthodox Jews, when somebody dies, they set a parameter on a mourning period they call Shiva, which is seven days. So for seven days, you wear black clothes and you mourn and you stay home and you cry and and you pray and you huddle up as a family and you deal with it. And after that, you get up and you wash your face, and you put on clean clothes, and you go back about your business. In Second Samuel chapter 12, verse 20, there's a story about King David who lost a son. And before the son died, he was mourning, he was pleading, he was wearing sackcloth and ashes, and he was begging God to save his son. But when his son died, he got up, and here's what happened. Second Samuel 12, 20, Then David arose from the earth, he got up, 
and he washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes, and he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. He then went to his own house, and when he asked, they set food before him, and he ate. David couldn't do anything else about losing his son. So at some point, he had to get back up. He had to wash his face and put his clothes on. He was still sad, but he had a country to run, a family to lead, a wife to love who was also grieving. And so did we. We had to move. We had to take care of our youngest daughter who was still in high school. We had to go back to work. We had at some point to separate even just a little bit the loss of our son from the rest of our lives. And that's what I want you to think about when it's time to do something, when you don't know what to do. The first thing is to set some parameters around it and at the appropriate time to understand that there is a separation there is a, an uncoupling that needs to happen between this circumstance, the thing that happened to you, and who you are. If you start letting that thing become a defining thing for you, if you start becoming the person whose loss becomes who they are, then you're going to have a hard time ever getting back up from that loss or that struggle or that trial or that thing that you're going through. It's the ability to separate the event from the rest of your life, the event from your identity that's going to allow you at some point to finally get up and wash your face and start moving again. And we had a little shrine sort of set up to Mitchell. I don't mean it in a religious way, but we had this table that was in our entryway that after the funeral kind of became this collecting point for photographs and greeting cards and and stuff that kind of came around from the funeral and people that were over and people leaving us notes and, and there were some pictures and some mementos and things about that that, that kind of reminded us of Mitch or were all about him. And I kind of started treating it like a little shrine when I would come uh, into the house from work or come out of the house uh, on my way to the kitchen or walking past this table, I would see this shrine and I would sort of stop there and look at a picture of Mitch and I would read the cards and I would sort of just dwell in it. And I realized after a couple of weeks, Lisa and I both realized that we were we were stuck. We were staying put, and it was hurting us a little bit. It was hurting our daughter who was still in high school, and she needed at some point to get her feet back under her. And we couldn't let it all be about Mitch all the time. We weren't done hurting, but we had to be ready to go and move forward in our lives. So Kaylin said it best back then. She said, we're not moving on, but we have to carry on when it was time for her to go back to school. And so the first thing is just recognize that at some point you've got to carry on. You've got to get up and wash your face and move again, no matter what it is, what this event is that's happening in your life. The point when you finally do start moving again, though, stuff's going to hurt. Here's what happened. When we realized that we had to take the shrine to Mitch down, We made that decision together, but the first time I came back in the house and walked to that table and it wasn't there, I kind of freaked out. It hurt my heart. I felt like I was betraying my son, like I had put him away, like somehow I had put him in a drawer and maybe forgotten about him, even though I hadn't. And I felt sorry that I had moved all that stuff, and I felt like I was dishonoring him. Even though we made that decision, and even though it had to be done, it caused some pain. And stuff hurts. You know when you sit in a car for a long time or you sleep in the weird position, you get up and you start moving finally, and stuff hurts that you didn't expect to hurt. And that's what's going to happen to you, unfortunately, when you make that decision and you start moving again, you're going to have some pain. 
I told you earlier about the shingles. I, we were in um, Texas visiting our newborn granddaughter about two weeks after Mitch died. Our granddaughter was born three days after he died. And we were hanging out with the baby and with our daughter and son-in-law. And all of a sudden, I started feeling this weird pain in between my right shoulder, kind of inside of my right shoulder blade. And I reached back to scratch it, and it hurt when I touched it. And I reached up under my shirt, and there were blisters all over my skin. And I took my shirt off, and I recognized it immediately for what it is because I see it in my own patients sometimes. I had shingles. had this eruption of a virus that burst forth out of my skin because of the pain in my heart. And a few days later, I woke up one morning and I had a big patch of silver hair on the side of my head that was not there the night before. And within a few weeks, most of my formerly blonde hair was gray. And that's all about physical pain. Your body is going to do stuff to you when you start moving forward again after this event that happens. You lost your job. You went bankrupt. You, your wife left you. Your child died. Whatever it is that you're going through, you've got cancer, you're dealing with something, you're going to have some pushback from your body when you try to move. Now, there are some people who think that life is all just about um, the time that we spend here on this earth and then it's over, Okay. And those people would look at this uh, pushback as being all about physiology and anatomy and psychology and stress. I also think that there's some spiritual implications here. I think that when you are a person who's got a lot to give the world and something bad happens in your life and it has an opportunity to knock you down, I think your enemy, the devil, if you want to call him that, that's what I call him, I think he wants you to stay and become defined by that hard thing that happened to you. Because if that happens, if you sit down and you give up, then you can't influence other people. You can't help other people. You can't fulfill your mission and your calling in this life. And your story will become less than what it was because of that hard thing. And so I think some of the pains and aches and not just the physical stuff, but the, the spiritual and the emotional stuff that's so hard to get moving again after a big traumatic event, I think that's spiritual warfare. And so watch out for that. Pray about it. Seek out ways to overcome it. And I think that's one of the keys to starting to move again when you don't know what to do. And guess what? Sweat dries, blood clots, and bones heals. You didn't die. So the fact is that if you can recognize that you didn't die when the thing happened, then you're in a point where you can start to give yourself permission to move again. You're still breathing. Sometimes that was enough for me, just, just to sit there in the quiet, in the dark, and say, I'm in so much pain, I don't think I can move again. I don't understand why I'm even still alive again. I don't have anything to be thankful for. And I would just take a breath, and I would recognize, hey, that breath that just came, at least that means I'm still alive. And then that, that one little moment of being thankful for my breath would allow me a little bit of space to separate myself from the pain a little bit, where I could say, okay, I also have a loving wife who's right here at my side. I also have four other kids. I also have a new grandchild. I also have millions of other blessings and I could separate just a little bit just a just a tiny bit of space to cleave away so I could recognize that I was a person independent of this hard thing that had been thrust into our life so that pain that's going to come you're going to be able to get through it I know you can I know you can because you're listening to this John Piper who's one of my favorite writers his website, I'll put a link in the show notes for you. He says that the best assurance of future grace is past grace. In other words, whenever he's wondering if God's going to get him through another situation, he just looks backward and sees all the previous ones that he's gotten through. 
And then he believes that he'll be able to get through this one too because God never let him down in the past. He probably won't let him down in the future. And that's enough for him. And I felt the same thing. Does it still hurt? Of course it does. I guarantee you this. Someday, if I live long enough, I'm going to be an old man. I might be a demented old man. And if I'm demented, I'm pretty sure that on my deathbed, I'm going to be calling out for my kids and I'm going to be calling out for Mitch too. That he's so real in my heart that I'm going to be looking for him when I'm an old man. I miss him just as much today, six years later, as I did the day he died. I'm able to see it a little differently now. I'm looking at a picture of him right now in my studio. There's a picture of Mitch when he was a senior in high school playing his bass that we had gotten him for Christmas, his Rickenbacker bass that was his prized possession. He's got this big smile on his face that he had when he played music. And I just miss him just as much as ever. But I have a little space between the event and who we are. I understand that I have a life that's apart and separate from losing my child, and it's not the defining thing in my life. I met a woman shortly after Mitch died who told me that she was in a support group. She invited Lisa and I to go to a support group with her, and she had lost a nephew 15 years before, and she was still going to a grief support group once a week for 15 years. And I realized I couldn't be that person. I couldn't sit with it. I couldn't sit shiva with it for 15 years, that I had other things in my life that deserved attention. Kaylin and our other children and our grandchildren and my wife had to have attention, and I couldn't give it all to my son who had passed away. I had to be able to separate those things just a little bit. And it hurts, but you have to. That's one of the things that you have to do is you have to ask yourself, did you die? And if you didn't die, then you have to recognize that the sweat dries and the blood clots and the bones heal, and you will get through this. So when you don't know what to do, start just by taking a breath and recognize and acknowledge that what you're feeling is separate from who you are. Separate the emotion and the loss from your own identity. Put some parameters around it. Sit shivel with it. At the appropriate time, though, you've got to start moving. You're not the thing that happened to you. You're not the person you lost, and your life is affected by but not defined by that thing. So breathe. Sit shiva with it. Separate it a little bit. And when it's time, get up, put the shrine away, wash your face, and start moving again. When you don't know what to do, fall back to where you built your house, to the solid bottom that held, and you know it held because you're still here and you didn't die. The sweat dries, the blood clots, the bones heal, and you will live through this. You will get back on your feet. It's time to live again. It's time to start again. And you have to start today. Worship is the way I find His love. Worship is the way I find His peace. Singing holy is the Lord Worship is the way I find His strength And courage to press on in His righteous ways When I sing worthy is the Lamb And Lord you always give out of your boundless grace your blessings overflow whenever i sing your praise singing holy are you lord 
So I stand. So I stand. Yes, we do. Wait, oh, oh Lord, I stand. Hey, thanks for listening. Please subscribe to the show so you automatically get every episode. And if you like the show, you'll love my weekly letter. Check out my writing at drleewarren.substack.com, drleewarren.substack.com. Get the free newsletter every week for my best prescriptions for becoming healthier, feeling better, and being happier through the power of faith and neuroscience smashing together via self-brain surgery, drleewarren.substack.com. And if you need prayer, go to the prayer wall at wleewarrenmd.com slash prayer. The theme music for the show is Make Us One by Tommy Walker, graciously provided for free by the great folks over at tommywalkerministries.org. Check it out and consider supporting them, tommywalkerministries.org. Remember, you can't change your life until you change your mind. And the good news is you can start today. I'm Dr. Lee Warren. I'll talk to you soon. God bless you, friend. Have a great day.